You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 206 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Hi, you from the casino? I'm from a casino. Good enough, let's go. Are you sure this is the casino? I think I should call my manager. Your manager says for you to shut up! Vera said that? Hmm. Uh, oh! Uh. Jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin laid an egg. Batmobile lost its wheel and the Joker got away. Hey! Thank you, thank you very much. Oh, I'm sorry, kid. That has always been one of my favorite jokes back in the glory days of The Simpsons. I think I should call my manager. Your manager says for you to shut up! Vera said that? Anyway, a merry, merry Christmas to all. Hope you are enjoying the holy days. And that you are making it a very compassionate, loving event, rather than a money-grabbing, egocentric orgy. Now in this episode we are going to talk to Sarah Gale. Sarah is MAPS Director of Harm Reduction. She has a Master's in Transpersonal Counseling Psychology and began working with MAPS in 2012, coordinating psychedelic harm reduction services at festivals and events worldwide with the Sendo Project. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, of course. And Sarah was uh, an intern therapist for the recently completed Phase 2 of MAPS clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, and she maintains a private practice as a psychotherapist specializing in trauma and non-ordinary states of consciousness. Sarah believes that developing a comprehensive understanding of psychedelic medicines through research and education is essential for the health and well-being of individuals, communities and the planet, and I must agree with that belief. So here's Sarah. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Alex. So could you tell the listeners a bit about uh, yourself and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Sarah Gale, and I uh, work with the Zendo Project, which is MAPS's Department of Harm Reduction. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I am the director for the Zendo Project and have been working with MAPS since about 2013. I also am a private practice psychotherapist with a practice in Boulder, Colorado. And I work with um, MAPS on another, another project, which is the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD research that's currently happening and we have a study site in boulder and so i'm a therapist on that study and i also do ketamine assisted psychotherapy at a clinic here in boulder so really um i I have a couple different hats that i wear at maps and then i have my private practice 
And I have been in this working in this field of psychedelic harm reduction and research since 2012. And I'm really passionate about education and research on these substances and how to work with people who are um, in altered state experiences. I have a degree in transpersonal counseling psychology from Naropa University in Boulder. And transpersonal counseling really focuses on beyond the person, beyond the human. So essentially, there's, there's a few definitions of transpersonal counseling and psychology, but it is an intersection often between spirituality and psychology and is a branch of counseling and psychology that focuses on how humans engage with the broader context of their world and their environment including environmental, socio-political, and um, it also looks at the intersection of the human experience with non-ordinary states of consciousness and altered state experiences. And psychedelics is just one of those ways in which humans choose to explore non-ordinary states or altered states of consciousness. And that happens to be where my primary focus of work and research is uh, currently. In a perfect world, if uh, you could use these substances for uh, any form of trauma or, or mental problem, um, as everybody knows, it's important with the set and setting. And, uh, and if uh, it becomes legal in, in the whole world, let's say, and people go to people like you, like a counselor or a therapist or a psychologist. I've, every time I've been in such offices, I haven't been much, but a few times I've been, it doesn't feel like the right setting. So, I mean, it's so clinical and cold and looks like almost like an office it might be a couch or a, or a plant or something, but it's not the same as like in out in nature and, and or in the comfort of your own home so how do you because how do you think that will develop over the years when it becomes more acceptable Mm. yeah that's a really interesting question um well first i'll say that so yes people choose to take psychedelics um, both recreationally therapeutically and ceremonially in many different types of contexts and so um because I work in both the recreational environment as well as the therapeutic environment, um, recreational being the, the work that I do with the Zendo project, and really what I see is that people are choosing to engage with these substances in a variety of different contexts and environments, and the, the main one being right now recreationally. And you, you could say that um, there's many different recreational environments that are often also... Um, is set up in ways that are not ideal conditions for the psychedelic experience. And um, many people who choose to take psychedelics in those types of environments, whether it's concerts or festivals or at house parties or in their own homes, can run into specific challenges with that, such as the variety of different um, variables and potential experiences and the people and music and lights and oftentimes when people end up in the Zendo project where we support people who are having challenging psychedelic experiences they have been taking a substance in a recreational environment and 
um, have a challenging experience, um, often but not always as a result of the setting of those recreational environments. And so on the other hand, if you're going to kind of go to another side of the spectrum, say, you have a clinical setting with an office, and um, sometimes those clinical settings can be set up very cold. I totally agree with you. I think that what we are used to seeing is very sterile um, environments where there's uh, kind of the opposite of a recreational environment, minimization of variables, minimization of distractions, things like that. And so, and then you have ceremonial environments like um, ayahuasca ceremonies, peyote, teepee ceremonies, a uh, variety of different plant medicines that are often used in more ceremonial contexts. And as you're describing setting, you know, I think a lot of people, many people have that in mind as their kind of ideal setting. But not everybody. Um, there are plenty of people who use psychedelics in recreational settings who are not interested in ceremonial context, um, being in nature or uh, being outside. There's many people who do prefer that. And um, there are also people who would prefer a, a clinical setting or a clinical environment where there is a reduction in variables and input and people. <laughs> and uh, where they would feel safest in that environment. But I do think it's really important for uh, when using psychedelics in a clinical context in research or when these substances become medicalized for that purpose or decriminalized for that purpose, that those office spaces are set up to be incredibly um, pleasing to the eyes and um, environments where you can incorporate elements of nature and just softer elements, whether it's art or just a warm, comforting, home-like environment. And that's what we do in the Boulder study. Our, our office is very home-like and it kind of, in some ways, um, it, it's very different, but it's kind of modeled in, in a way after... Um, let me back up a little. Um, so the Zendo Project environment is like really sweet and homey and there's a lot of, there's beds and there's tea and there's chairs for people to sit and there's beautiful tapestries and that's uh, a place that people often experience as very relaxing, the setting. We put a lot of thought into it with the Zendo Project. And then we also simultaneously put a lot of thought into how our office looks for the study, for, for the research. and. Um, it's a very, we try to make it as, as comfortable as possible. So, but I will say that, yeah, people have different, different desires and different wants when it comes to that context, uh, the context or set setting that they want to have a psychedelic experience in. A traditional therapist or psychiatrist, or they have different names, names depending on what they can do. But the one that can prescribe a medicine, like against depression or something, like Prozac or something like that, they, they, there's no need for them to ever have any personal experience with it because they can read what its side effects are and then give it to a person they think might need it. But doesn't like psychedelics in a medicine form kind of require the therapist or whoever it is to have experienced themselves? Otherwise, it could be very difficult to understand how to guide somebody. Um, yes, definitely. That is um, an important 
an important topic and important perspective. The way that we're addressing that within the context of the research at MAPS is that the therapists who are working currently on phase three um, of the clinical trials are offered the experience of um, a clinical setting of using MDMA in you know, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with two therapists, uh, very similar in format to the way that we do the work with the participants in the study. And so that's something that is offered to the therapists, but it's not a requirement. We can't make it a mandatory requirement, but it's strongly encouraged. And um, yeah, most people do go through that. Most of the therapists do go through that process. And I agree that it's it can be incredibly supportive and helpful. And um, you know, there's there's different views on the necessity of it. Uh, I I'm of the perspective that I do think it's important to have um, experiences, even if they're not psychedelic, non-ordinary or altered state experiences. There's other ways of of having those types of experiences, such as prolonged meditated states or things like holotropic breath work, meditation of different forms, dance. Um, and I, I do agree that in an ideal world, um, the people who are working with these medicines in, in any context, you know, ceremonially or, or clinically, would have experience with those substances. I don't know how that will look in the future. Obviously, there's this catch-22, and at MAPS, we're very fortunate to be able to have the ability to do this with the therapists who are in the study, um, and hopefully that will be the standard in the future. I do um, you know, personally believe that, and um, this isn't a unanimous, you know, not necessarily speaking on, on behalf of MAPS here, but personally, I, I do think that it is important. And, uh, and I also believe that there are other ways to access expanded states that are non-psychedelic, but that are similar in, in effect to certain psychedelics. But it's definitely a, a big topic of discussion. And, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. So this Sendo project, uh, exactly what is it? Is it like if you go to a rave and... You're, you'll be there, or where, where can you encounter the Zendo project? Yeah, so the, the Zendo project is, as I said, part of MAPS, and we have been, MAPS has been engaged in what we call psychedelic harm reduction since really the early 2000s, and they were helpful in getting a number of harm reduction, um, what we call peer support initiatives, started and off the ground um, in, a, in a few different places. And so harm reduction is a really big term and it encompasses drug education, and sex education, and it's not, um, it's not exclusive to psychedelic substances. It really, harm reduction is a movement that is looking at how we respond to drug use in our society. And so it's the idea, it's, it's really a theory and a set of practices and principles that say, you know, people are going to take substances in our society of all different kinds. And rather than a punitive prohibitionist approach, 
that we should focus on safety and risk mitigation and risk management. And um, it also, you know, harm reduction is also a, a, a social movement, essentially, and really takes into account the harms that have been done by prohibition and by the war on drugs and how, um, as we saw with alcohol and as we saw with cannabis, uh, prohibition often leads to greater safety risks, both for the individuals consuming substances as well as their communities and those around them. And it doesn't really, um, you know, prohibitionist um, practices and and policies don't really address and look at drug use, substance use in a way that is um, non-pathologizing and also really looking at why people choose to use substances. Um, and when it comes to drug abuse, um, really looking at the underlying causes of abuse versus just trying to stop people from taking drugs, but really looking at, you know, what's going on when people are, are struggling with drug abuse. So um, that's, you know, harm reduction. And peer support and well, psychedelic harm reduction and peer support is really a, a very small subset of that. And that is where the Zendo Project comes in. And so MAPS had been doing harm reduction for a number of years. They had worked at Boom Festival in Portugal, where drugs have been decriminalized for some time, I think about a decade now. And they also helped at Burning Man since the early 2000s, helping there with the sanctuary program that they had in place with the Black Rock Rangers at Burning Man. And in 2012, they launched the official um, Zendo project by, the, by that name. And what the Zendo project does is it's twofold. One is pre we provide direct service at festivals. We do a few main festivals a year. We do smaller events. Um, some of our main festivals are Envision, Festival in Costa Rica, Lightning in a Bottle in California, and um, Burning Man are our two main events, or three main events. And then we've also worked with other organizations and um, festival production companies over the years. And so we do this direct service. So we provide peer support with trained volunteers. We train volunteers from all different walks of life and backgrounds on how to work with people in the altered states. And um, our work is based on four main principles, which are people can learn about um, by exploring our website more. I won't go too deep into them, but they're creating a safe space is, is the first principle. Talking through and not down is the second. Sitting and not guiding. And difficult is not the same as bad. And these principles really inform the, the ways in which we work with people. And the way that I would um, describe that is, you know, we have this very punitive uh, approach that has been happening for a while now with people who are on substances. When you hear about experiences where people are having a challenging um, trip experience or they're having a very intense experience and say people are, um, you know, in, in places where they're acting and behaving in ways that are not societally acceptable because they're on a substance or just people are having a challenging time. Just, you know, their experience may not be so intense or, or socially disruptive, but they are just having a, a difficult time internally. We work with every everyone on that spectrum from 
people who can come up to us and say, I need help, to people who are brought to us by uh, security or medical. And um, our, our modality and the way that we, our approach is um, a de-escalation, non-restraint, non-sedation approach. So it's an alternative way of working with these states that helps reduce the number of drug-related hospitalizations um, that are unnecessary hospitalizations. Obviously, there are necessary ones as well, um, uh, and, and unnecessary um, arrest, which often happens with people, um, especially you know in these recreational environments. And so we help to minimize that, and we believe that a compassionate approach of de-escalation and really um, working with accepting the challenging state, turning toward the experience and not away from it, and um, sitting with a person rather than, you know, being necessarily a healer, shaman, therapist. And so it's not therapy, it's called peer, peer support, peer-to-peer support. And really it's it's very simple, not always easy, but it's um it's really based in just being really present and grounded with another individual. And we train our volunteers. We have day long trainings and half day trainings on how to tools that we've found to be helpful to deal with these challenging experiences. And we've helped over uh, 4,500 individuals since 2012 to date. And, um, and we, yeah, we really feel that this work is important. Since we started doing this work, a number of other organizations that provide similar services have popped up. And a, a lot of our desire is for, for that, for outreach, for people to see what we're doing and to create similar organizations and services in their communities. So that's one side. And then the other side of what we do is we do direct education and outreach. So we do a number of trainings every year in major cities mostly on how to pretty much the training that we give our volunteers. We open that up and offer that to the public and people come to our trainings from all different backgrounds and walks of life, um, mental health clinicians, um, doctors, people in the medical field, and um, also people who just really want to support their friends and their community. So um, non, you know, non-professional, maybe people who are just really interested in, in learning these skills so that they can support others that they love and care for. So um, our, our two main branches of the Zender Project are direct service and outreach and education. I like that concept about the difficult trip because I often say that my... You know, it's a common term to say bad trip and I often say that my bad trips were my best trips because I learned more from them uh, after they were over but maybe it's better to say difficult trips yeah it's, it's interesting because we've heard that um, you know the people that we've worked with uh, within the Zendo they'll, they'll say that that um, or our volunteers as well We'll say that that's just a really helpful way of reframing it. You know, it's a it's a theoretical framing, and um, it some would say, oh, it's you know, it's just semantics. But I do think that you know, especially when people are in an altered state, if you're if you're thinking this is bad, this is a bad experience, I, I shouldn't be having this. Something is wrong. Something is wrong with me. Something went wrong. Um, you know, all of those lines that 
that people can go down in that in those states, it can be helpful to have a reframe of like, like you said, your sometimes your most difficult and your bad trips are your most rewarding experiences, and you learn from them and grow from them. So it is a, a theoretical and semantic difference that's slight but also big, um, and it really informs the way that we work with people too because. When you approach someone and they're having a challenging time, you know, if you're coming at it from a place of this is bad, um, this is a bad experience, it really doesn't leave a lot of room for the idea that, oh, this is maybe difficulty or challenges coming up because, hey, psychedelics are a catalyst for healing. And people have known that for many centuries and people in the West have known that for uh, you know, about a century um, in, in terms of here in the U.S. especially. And um, so, but it, it's known through, as we see with psychedelic therapy and research as well as ceremonial environments that psychedelics bring up our, our stuff for us to look at it. And um, when, when that comes up, it's natural for us to uh, sometimes have an aversion to that. And so a lot of what we do with the Zendo is just create a safe space where people can turn toward their experience and um, and really work with it. And even though we're not doing therapy, you know, the, the feedback that we get in people's experience and what they share is just that their experience with sitting with someone who was non-judgmental, compassionate, accepting, and um, really treated them like, hey, it's, it's okay that you're having this experience and this doesn't mean that it's bad. You're just going through a challenging experience and you're going to get through it. Um, that has been incredibly helpful and we've received you know, overwhelmingly positive feedback from our guests. We, we get guest feedback from every guest that comes through our space and um, we, we have a lot of of people who have expressed that that way of, of working with the experience has been really supportive and helpful for them, you know, which is why one of the main reasons why we keep doing this work is because when, when you see the tangible impact that it has on people's lives, where a potentially traumatic, you know, potentially um, difficult experience that could turn into a traumatic experience because it's not dealt with properly. And that's just, that's not just restraint and and sedation or arrest. It's also, you know, people who feel very alone in their experience and they're not able to share it with anybody. And I, I meet people all the time who say, you know, I had an experience when I was younger um, and I'm older in life and it was 20 years ago and it still haunts me to this day because I wasn't able to get support. I wasn't able to share what was happening for me and I got stuck in a mental loop and it's impacted my, my life. So it doesn't, you know, sometimes it looks as intense as the people who end up in those situations where restraint and sedation are used as, as modalities, as, as the most go-to moda modalities. But it can also be as simple as someone just feeling really alone in their process and, and not having any support with it. One common thing that people can experience uh, that could be perceived as negative is when your mind becomes a loop. And it can be quite uh, a nightmare when that happens. Do you have any easy suggestions if, if somebody finds themselves in that situation, how to get out of this loop? when the same thing or same thought or same visuals just keep repeating. Yeah. So I always, um, we always tell people that 
working with your own difficult experiences, you can learn a lot from how we, you know, how we train people to work with others' difficult experiences. So as we teach and as we share these tools, it's, it's not just for helping others. It's also if you, if you find yourself in this kind of experience. And so really um, the same principles apply, which are try to turn toward your experience and not run, a, run away from it. Try to get support if you can from someone who feels supportive and someone who's not going to be, you know, having an overreactive, you know, experience or reaction to your situation. Um, you know, make sure that you are, uh, you know, physically safe. Physical safety is really important. So always, you know, test your substances. You can buy t testing kits on dancesafe.org. Um, always know what you're taking, how much you're taking. And so that's kind of the preventative. Um, you know, know that your substance that you're taking is pure. Test your, your substances. Um, plan for set and setting. Plan for where you're going to be and who you're going to be with. So that's all kind of preventative. And then if you do find yourself in that place, regardless of what environment you're in, um, yeah, get support if you can, if there are people around. Um, call call a friend if you feel comfortable with that friend. And, um, and then really working with trying to just turn towards your experience. A lot of things come up for people. So, you know, trauma, unprocessed trauma and grief comes up. So the more that you can allow yourself to be with and feel your emotions in a safe context, and the less you can resist the experience, the better. And the more support you have and the better your setting is, the more you're going to be able to do that. So for someone who's, you know, tripping on uh, they're in, on a street somewhere and they're not with friends and they don't know where they are. That's obviously not, you know, a recommended setting for having a psychedelic experience. So that's why we really encourage people to focus on their setting. Um, so if you're in a, in a setting that feels supportive and then things come up and you get, you get stuck in a thought loop or you get stuck in a rumination about something um, that feels really hard and scary, uh, just doing your best to um, release resistance to that, feel the emotions that are coming up and be with the experience and get support as needed. Um, are some of the ways that that people can work with that? There's a saying that we fall that that we follow that is what we resist persists, and it's a saying that's in therapy as well. So the more we resist something, the more it's going to get bigger and louder, and the less easy it's going to be to release it and let it go, and for it to transform and transmute into something else. Um, so yeah, that's, there's, it's kind of twofold. It's like really set yourself up for success if you're, you know, if you're choosing to engage in this path and, and take psychedelics, you know, really be mindful of, of your set and setting and your drug. And then on the other end of it, you know, those difficult experiences will be a lot easier to work with if you do have, um, if you have paid attention to that and, um, and it will help you to, to, let go and to release resistance and be with the experience. But just remember that things are coming up because catalysts are these psychedelics are catalysts for healing and, um, and they bring things up and that's normal and that's okay. And, 
you know, we live in a very emotionally stifled kind of emotional page time. Strong emotions are, are really, um, no, we're not taught how to work with strong emotions. So a lot of the work that we do with the Zendo Project is just supporting people and experiencing strong emotions. Many years ago, I sat in an ayahuasca circle down there in, in the Amazon, and there was a woman that was next to me. I didn't know her, but I knew she'd gone through some very dark things in her life, but without knowing the details. But during the ceremony, she was in such spiritual agony. She was making all these noises, and it sounded horrible, I mean, whatever she was going through. But... Uh, you know, it infected me <laughs> because I was right next to her. So after a while, I just kept had to say to her, like, you please be quiet. I was also deep in my own thing. So, you know, I was trying. And then I asked the helpers to, I don't know what happened. Uh, I'm sure they somehow made her become more quiet. And that because she was almost driving me insane with, you know, because it can be very infectious. So what happens if you have a couple of people who are in the Sendo safe space just to calm down and then there's somebody who comes in who's making a lot of noise or is completely hysterical? Do you put take that person to another area or how do you deal with that? Yeah, so it it's an interesting uh, dance that we do. <laughs> um so in general, all experiences, you know, as within the boundaries of, of safety in terms of no harm to self, no harm to others, no harm to property, um, medically safe, medically stable, um, you know, within those boundaries, uh, people can experience a lot and express a lot in the Zendo. And so at any given time, we might have someone who's very vocal, very active, as well as someone who's very quiet and internal. And over the years, we have really seen that um, there's just an interesting interplay and some sort of synchronicity at times. I, mean, I tend to see things in that way. <laughs> and I think that um, the people who end up in the space at the same time and the, the topics that people are exploring within themselves, often there's this very synchronistic experience that people have. Um, where there's related topics to their to their journeys, and it's very interesting to see and to watch. And um, you know, in often in an ayahuasca ceremony, it, it really varies from from shaman to shaman, from you know the different ayahuascas and um, that you're working with. But often there are guidelines around you know being trying to trying to maintain your autonomy within the space and not be too disruptive. That's not always the case, but that's um, kind of a gross overgeneralization. Over but, um, you know, holding your seat, maintaining your, your energy, not being too loud as to interrupt others' experiences. And like you're sharing with your experience, it can become interruptive. But I think that the difference, one of the differences I've seen in the Zendo project is because it's in recreational environments and those environments are already so intense and overwhelming that um, there can just be people in the Zendo who are having really different experiences. And it, it kind of develops this group field, like how you experience in an ayahuasca ceremony where things start to feel connected um, to people start to feel connected to one another. And I'll give an example. So I, this is less um, 
you know, this is more practical and tangible example. We'll have people who are in a quiet experience and someone comes in who's very loud and active. And the person who's more quiet sometimes will see what the other person is going through and have a variety of experiences that are actually not, you know, taking them, like not necessarily annoyance or frustration, but they'll have experiences that are um, caring or compassionate or curious, you know, or um, a sense of, wow, I'm not in this alone. I'm actually, there's other people who are having intense experiences and that person's experience looks really interesting and different from my own. And so you could say that it does take people out of their individual experience at times, but rarely have we found this to be very disruptive to people. It's been very rare that we've had any one guest in the Zendo ask, you know, can you make that person be quiet? Can you quiet that person down? It's happened very occasionally, and I just think it's something about the setting, it being in a recreational environment, as well as it being so open to a variety of people's experiences, that it just seems it just seems to work. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. I often, you know, really encourage people to apply and volunteer and experience it, but it's um it's very surreal at times in that aspect that, you know, kind of feels like a 24 seven ayahuasca ceremony, but it's all different kinds of substances. You never know what's going to walk through the door. Um, people are also often there for less amount of time. So, you know, instead of having to sit through an eight hour ayahuasca experience, people are maybe there for a couple hours and people are coming at different times. So somebody might be in, in there for four hours and then somebody comes in who's in a very active state and the person who's been in there for four hours is now getting ready to, to leave because they're feeling good and they're ready to, to go back out into the, the festival. And so, you know, people do stay there for eight hours at times and have their experience. But um, people are often come in for a shorter amount of time, too. So I think that's a factor. Um, there's also something that happens with the people who are very active where they come into a space. And if the Zendo happens to be really quiet and there's a lot of people who are quietly processing there's something that can happen with a person that's very active where they see that environment and they recognize, wow, this is a really different, this is a really different environment than I was experiencing out there in the party. And it's quiet, it's quieter, it seems calmer, even if it's not quiet. <laughs> there's a calmness to it, there's a groundedness to the space. And so they can come in, often people who were, you know, really um, in a very heightened state. And they can come in and they can really see the, the grounded nature of the space. And sometimes people just kind of quiet down and sit down or lay down and, and kind of match their energy to the space. And there can be like a, I've seen people have like a internal check where they're like, oh, okay, this is different than out there in the festival. And, and maybe this is a space where I I can be quiet and maybe it's better for me to be quiet in this space. That isn't always the case. We sometimes just have really active people who, you know, don't care who's around them and are in a state of complete ego dissolution and couldn't care less, you know, <laughs> what other people are experiencing. But yeah, it's a great question that we get a lot and it's a really interesting dynamic to, to watch. And so, yeah, totally honor your experience of feeling like, you know, that was really disruptive to your, to your journey and um, you know, it, it happens and 
we just try to make it, we try to make it part of the experience while making it at least disruptive as possible. We also do have a space in the back of our main space that is a, a separate tent for people who are having um, really active experiences or just want to be alone. So we, we move people there sometimes who, if it does get too overwhelming because other people are having loud disruptive experiences, they can go there. Or we also can bring the person who's um, being loud to that space. So we do have that for special cases and, and incidents. Um, and um, so sometimes we do use that space as well. So it's a, it's a combination of both. It can be the other way around also, because I remember one time in a ceremony, I was making a lot of noise myself and moving around on my mat. And I felt I was thinking even at the time, like, oh, I must be annoying my neighbors And the next day I asked them, like, sorry, or I apologized that, sorry, I was so uh, loud and noisy and moving around. And, and, and they were like, oh, we didn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That's a great, that's, that's a great point. What keeps the police away? I mean, they could just stand there and wait for all the illegal drug takers and just pick them one by one. What keeps them away? Um, well, that's... Um... So if you're not being, you know, too publicly disruptive or harmful, it's not really, you know, it's not illegal to be altered in a public space. It's illegal to be, um, you know, where, where the cops often get interested is definitely when it results in behavioral issues. Um, you know, so oftentimes, you know, having drugs on you or selling drugs, obviously that's a different story, but... Um, oftentimes, you know, the police at, at recreational, um, in these environments at concerts, they know what's going on and they don't want to, my experience in working with officers in these environments is they're often really grateful that we're there. Um, I've, we've worked with law enforcement for many years now and when they know what we're doing and they know, um, the space that we're providing, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. It sounds, sounds surprising to a lot of people, but it's, it's really been overwhelmingly positive. There's a lot of, of officers that have, you know, come, there's officers that have come by the Zendo at Burning Man and said, thank you for what you're doing. You're helping to keep our officers safe because you're helping to deescalate these situations. We don't want to deal with them if we don't have to. We want the community and we want you guys to deal with it if you can. You know, officers often don't want to end up in those situations. They're there to fight. You know, they're there to essentially um, try to, to stop crime from happening. And psychedelic experiences and crime uh, happen together. You know, people have really intense psychedelic experiences and they do things that are illegal. And in those situations, then the police do become involved. But even in those situations, um, We have actually helped, we, we really work collaboratively with law enforcement. So, you know, we always defer to them. We never argue with them or, um, you know, are oppositional to them in any ways. And we've, when we've been clear on what we're doing and we describe it and um, they're becoming more and more increasingly aware, especially, you know, cops, officers who choose to work at, in these environments, they know what's going on. 
and they have to deal with those situations a lot. And so we actually take a burden off of security and off of law enforcement so that they can actually focus on what they're there to focus on, which is crime. Um, things like assault, domestic violence, um, things things like that, um, you know, sexual assault, things that do happen at festivals. And so they've been grateful that we have been able to support them and, and we've gotten great feedback from them. You know, this is a generalization. Obviously, um, there's many different types of officers and you know, people get into that field for a variety of different reasons, but people who choose, officers who often choose to work in those environments, they, they, um, there's just a different awareness and experience of, of what's happening there, and they've been grateful for our presence. And we, we actually have trained officers, we have um, provided de-escalation trainings for officers before, and so, um, yeah, it has been a, a collaborative process. Um, we've been involved in situations where people did need to get arrested because there was a criminal act that has a, occurred while they were altered. And in those situations, we've helped that individual um, be, you know, we've helped de-escalate that individual while they've had to go through the process of being arrested. And that is, you know, the, the police are able to see that and they're appreciative of that. And, um, you know, we've also done the same for people who've needed to be hospitalized, whether it's for medical reasons or um, mental health reasons. We have helped to, you know, work with medical professionals to, you know, help get the person um, to where they need to be, whether it's, you know, going to a hospital, um, getting, getting outside care that is beyond our scope of practice. In those situations, we've been able to help to support and calm the individual and keep the situation de-escalated while they are transferred into a higher level of care. And so we work with security, um, police officers, law enforcement, um, and medical in a very collaborative approach. And um, that doesn't mean that we you know, haven't run into things, but mostly it's been incredibly um, symbiotic. I guess it depends on what country you live in. I live in an area where it is also illegal to have it in your blood. So I could get arrested in theory for just being intoxicated by an illegal substance, even if I don't have it on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on a lot of things. So this, I really want to, yeah, to speak that this has been our experience within festival environments, which are a specific subset of culture and society. And um, they are uh, often um, the, the ones that, you know, Burning Man, um, other events, like they can be pretty homogenous. Um, they're there are, in terms of public venues um, or public situations or venues or concerts or different places, even with you know within the United States and abroad or in, around the world, um, that there are um, this does not the way that we have worked with officers does not apply um, does not is not the reality that people are experiencing. You know they're experiencing in, incredible. Um, oppression and they're experiencing situations where they are being, you know, they are being arrested you know, for being 
altered. This is festival environments where this is a common experience, um, as well as concert environments. And so it's a very particular subset. Um, and it, I don't want to in any way diminish um, people's experiences in different countries and different settings and people from variety, you know, diversity of backgrounds that have been, um, you know, marginalized and treated differently for um, where they are, who they are, how they look. And, um, and so it is inspiring to see the model that we've been able to create at festivals and um, it is work, it's going to be work to transfer this model into society at large in a bigger way. And, you know, we're really committed to that process of working to help transfer these tools and these, not just these tools, but these relationships and way of being in relationship with, you know, different um different departments and it is uh it is definitely um you know a very specific situation and a very specific setting that it, it's definitely going to take a lot of people's work to get to that place on a on a larger scale societal level but we're really committed to that conversation of how to better make that happen and how to um you know, bring that that way of, of working um, to other environments that are beyond just the festival environment. Um, but we've had we've had officers at our trainings. Um, like I said, we've had security at our trainings and uh, medical professionals. And so it's been really inspiring to see people come to our our trainings that we have in major cities who are from uh, law enforcement, medical, security it really that's showing that there are people within those departments who um who think differently who want a different way of dealing with these situations and um who are committed to helping take those tools back to the organizations um that they work with and for and so that that has been inspiring as well as just being able to to work with these departments in a way that doesn't happen often in the real world in a meaning in non-festival culture. So you're absolutely right. So if people like everything you've been saying, how can they support uh, the Sendo project if, if they can uh, or, or maps? Yeah. So um, maps and the Zendo project um, maps is a nonprofit organization. And as is the Zendo as part of maps, um, so we fall under that umbrella with them, and we are not our own separate entity. But we do get we can get direct donations, um, whether through the Maps website or Zendo Project. Um, our website is zendoproject.org, and Maps is maps.org, and there is a donate button on um, both of those websites. And we are completely um, well. We're funded by donors and donor support, and we also receive income from the festivals that we do and uh, the trainings that we hold. So you can come to our trainings, learn about what we do, uh, learn how to work with people is another way of both supporting the Zendo as well as learning these skills. If it's something that you're interested in applying to your your life and your work, um, 
And yeah, and volunteering is another way to get involved, both with MAPS and Zenda Project. And um, you can sign up for our newsletter on zendaproject.org slash contact. And when you sign up for that newsletter, you'll be informed of the trainings that we're doing, the events that we're going to be at, the volunteer applications when they're open. And from there, um, you apply to an event and um, can support in, in that way as well. And um, so those are some of the main ways to, to get involved as well as support the work. And we're really focused on helping to create a community of compassionate care with um, really a community and a, a movement of compassionate care where um, challenging situations of all kinds, psychedelic and otherwise, are dealt with humanely and, and compassionately. And, um, and so if that is something that you're drawn to, you know, please stay connected and, and reach out. And um, What does actually the word uh, come from, Zendo? Why did you call it that? Yeah, so the Zendo project, it actually comes from the Zendo project structure that um, we were gifted. So it is a cardboard yurt. It's a 30-foot cardboard yurt um, that is made out of recycled cardboard. <laughs> and it's a beautiful structure. And it was donated to us by a... Um, Austrian Zen Buddhist, um, Buddhist and teacher, uh, Vaja Palmers. And uh, it was designed by Zen architect Paul Disco. And Vaja had been using the structure at Burning Man for a few years as a space. He was bringing a group of Buddhist monks to come and their gift to the playa. So when you do Burning Man, you bring a gift to the community. Their gift was a space to come and meditate. So they would actually have hours that they were open where there would be um, a monk in their holding space for people to come in and be silent in silent meditation. And so at, at some point they, um, you know, in around 2011, 2010, they stopped bringing that and they donated the structure to the two maps for use um, for harm reduction. So to be a space specifically for this work. And uh, it's, it's interesting, we've kind of really evolved into the name like it's now the the overlap between um <laughs> between meditation specifically and what we do in the zendo is actually very similar you know acceptance presence being with what is not turning away from what is um facing what's in front of you facing whatever arises and accepting and loving that those are all the ways that we work with people Um, and sitting itself is also a form of, it can really be a form of meditation. Um, you know, being with people in this space can be a very meditative experience of you, you the sitter, working to be as present and as grounded as possible. And then to work with helping the guest, um, the people who come to our space, be as present with their experience and as grounded, you know, and, and present with what's coming up for them as possible. So... We kind of, uh, you know, we were gifted this beautiful structure, and over the years, it's just seemed like uh, the name Zenda Project that we took on has just felt like a really, um, a really good, um, 
yeah, a really good fit. And it's distinguished from Zendo. So we don't call our, our service the Zendo. We call it the Zendo Project. And we really wish to delineate that because Zendo is a term that is used for, you know, a Zendo is a Zen uh, Buddhist meditation space. And um, the Zendo project is a very specific project. So we, you know, want to create that delineation um, because we, we really want, we honor and respect that tradition. And, and um, yeah, so that's, that's how we got our name. And, um, yeah, that's a little bit more about us. <laughs> so thanks a lot for, for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, There's really great questions. And, yeah, I hope people um, learned some things and can go, you know, visit our, our website and learn more if they're interested. Uh, if you're still listening, you're probably interested <laughs> to some degree <laughs> um and uh so yeah thank you so much alex for having me go to sendoproject.org that's c-e-n-d-o project.org or maps.org to find out more i want to end this episode with a song this day by rev alan morgan from his album light tide to hear more of this artist go to solarministry.co.uk All the links can be found in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. If you feel like supporting the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. You can also find the podcast in most social media. Just use your Google skills. Next Sunday is the last episode of 2018. See you then. Freedom is in the mind. Golden radiance of sunshine I'll rise so high to make this new day Waking world rides a light wave oh, Thank you for this day Beings welcoming your warm rays oh, Chase my chatter round and round again With your gift of light we breathe here Thank you for this day In the cycle of the turning world You call us to Ever shining on this living world For you each breath is praise Tendrils reaching to be energized And feed the atmosphere This earth, your garden, is a paradise Your grace in space is here If with you we can radiate our love for all that you cultivate, give like you and not just take, oh, thank you for this day. Then our home could regenerate, flourish even with the human race 
symbiosis is a shared embrace. So thank you for this day. Oh, thank you for this day. Oh, thank you for this day.